to Counsel the Word, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. I'm your host, Keith Palmer, and today we're going to be talking about John Newton and biblical counseling. I am uh, always grateful to be with my good friend, uh, fellow brother pastor, uh, Terry Enns, and uh, he's with me here in the studio today uh, to talk uh, a little bit different conversation today because we're talking about my dissertation topic of John Newton and biblical counseling. So uh, this will be one of those times where Terry is going to take over the hosting privileges and uh, we're going to change chairs here and he's going to interview me about my uh, historic hero and topic of my uh, biblical counseling-related dissertation, uh, the topic of John Newton and his pastoral care. So, Terry, take it away as our guest host. Great. Thank you, Keith. It's always uh, fun to be with you and, and spend these conversations together. I think a lot of us know about John Newton. Certainly most people know about his hymn, Amazing Grace. But can you give us a little bit more background about um, his history, who he was, and then how did he engage in biblical counseling? Why are we talking about Newton in relation to biblical counseling? Yeah, you're right. So I think when people hear the name John Newton, they know him as the author of Amazing Grace, or they certainly know Amazing Grace. They may not know who, who wrote the hymn, but that's John Newton. So he's an 18th century pastor and hymn writer, and uh, from England, of course. And um, but what many people don't know is, in addition to his hymn writing, and he wrote many, many hymns, was he was a pastor for 43 years, following a career uh, at sea as the captain of a, um, actually a slave ship, believe it or not. And um, during the course of his pastoral ministry, he wrote over 1,000 letters wow. of pastoral care. So it's not just, hey, how's it going? I mean, there was an intentionality to his letters and that's what's so intriguing to me as a pastor and as a counselor is, man, here's, here's this guy that is caring for people and uh, had this prolific writing ministry. Uh, J.I. Packer, who's undoubtedly a, a very uh, a reliable theologian, said, quote, John Newton was perhaps the greatest pastoral letter writer of all time. Wow. So that's saying a lot of Packer says yeah, that. Uh, John Newton's biographer, uh, Jonathan Aitken, said that Newton was the leading evangelical commentator on religious subjects in Britain. So just stop and think about that. Yeah. John Newton lives at the same time as guys like George Whitfield and Charles and John Wesley. Um, you know, he's coming on the heels of, you know, uh, like Isaac Watts and, and even some of the, the English Puritans of the previous generation. So... To have someone say he was the, the leading evangelical commentator on religious subjects in Britain is really saying a lot because most of us have probably heard of Whitfield or Wesley. Not as many people have heard of Newton. So it's like, why, why is he the guy? And that, that was intriguing. Uh, part of it was he was sought after largely for his pastoral counsel as people got to hear his story of this radical conversion out of mm -hmm. a very perverse uh, young adult life, and then as the captain of, of slave ships uh, to the African coast, uh, as he came to Christ, people wanted to know, well, what was what was this man like? And, and they were so intrigued by his story that they wanted to talk to him about their own difficulties and their own challenges. And uh, one of the themes of my dissertation is just talking about how um, he cared for people in their suffering. So that's part of what people 
uh, wrote to him about was their difficulty, their pain, and then he would write uh, in response to that pastoral care uh, letters back to them. And so that's that's really one of my interests is his theology of suffering as he applies this robust ministry of biblical counseling through written letters is what made him so unique. So that's a little bit about Newton and a little bit about his okay. pastoral care. Yeah, that, that's that's really helpful because um, I think a lot of folks are generally familiar with some of the story, but certainly not the pastoral influence that he had. Um, as you talk about suffering, uh, what are some of the biblical perspectives and what's the theology that's undergirding his pastoral ministry to those who are suffering and hurting? Yeah, this is this is Newton at his best, I think, because underneath this pastoral care is this robust theology. And we often say in our counseling training that we counsel out of our theology. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and I think with suffering, we're so, um, I think, prone to say things trying to be helpful or encouraging, but not necessarily to say things that reflect a, a biblical view of suffering. And, and Newton had a way of communicating care for people that was gentle, that was gracious, and yet reflected accurate biblical theology. So mm. some of the themes we see in Newton's perspective on suffering as he spoke to people who were who were hurting uh, themes like God's sovereignty and God's goodness. And I'm just going to read you some quotes because I can tell you what he believed, but the real value is hearing how he said it. Okay, right. so, so Newton counseled people to see that, quote, afflictions spring not out of the ground, but are fruits and tokens of divine love, mm-hmm. no less than his comforts. And there is a need be, that was one of his favorite phrases, there's a need be whenever for a season he is in, heaviness. Uh, he often referenced Romans 8.28, just like we do today, encouraging strugglers that God was both completely in control of their calamities and was also working for their good through them. And I think that demonstrates that the biblical counselor's advice to suffering people regarding the role of God is directly related to the counselor's perspective, both of God's control and God's character. And Newton would say his goodness and his wisdom were particular attributes of God that encourage us in our suffering. We know he's in control, but he's controlling in a manner that reflects both his goodness and his wisdom. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we would say theology drives biblical counseling, and only faithful biblical theology would fuel accurate, helpful counseling. So God's sovereignty and God's goodness were one theme. Yeah. Another theme, as uh, we were talking about earlier, actually today in our staff meeting, um, is just his Christology, the person of Jesus. Um, Newton would often say we need to look to Jesus as a sympathetic high priest mm-hmm. who feels for them in their suffering. So here's Newton again. It is a comfortable consideration that he with whom we have to do, our great high priest, who once put away our sins by the sacrifice of himself and now forever appears in the presence of God for us, is not only possessed of sovereign authority and infinite power, but he wears our very nature and feels and exercises in the highest degree those tendernesses and commiserations which I conceive are essential to humanity in its perfect state. So just reflecting not just his deity, but his humanity, his role as high priest. Uh, he would emphasize not just his role as the high priest, 
but also that Jesus is the supreme disposer. That was his language, the supreme disposer of the believer's trials, and he sovereignly adjusts those trials according to his wisdom. So, so listen to this. When we further consider that he who thus suffered in our nature, who knows and sympathizes with all of our weaknesses, is now the supreme disposer of all that concerns us, that he numbers the very hairs of our heads, appoints every trial we meet with in number and weight and measure, and will suffer nothing to befall us but what shall contribute to our good. This view, I say, is a medicine suited to the disease and powerfully reconciles us unto every cross, meaning every difficulty. Right. So, so those are some other perspectives. Maybe, maybe one final one because it was a, a favorite term. Again, we were talking about this earlier. He, he often would say that trials were God's love tokens, his, his tokens of love, um, disguised mercies. Uh, so, for example, leaning on a text like Hebrews 12, 1 to 11, he encourages suffering people to view their afflictions as love expressions of a heavenly father who's training them for his holiness. So, so here's Newton again. And though they are still in a state of discipline for the mortification of sin, yet remaining in them, and though for the trial, exercise and growth of their faith, it is still needful that they pass through many tribulations. Yet none of these are strictly and properly penal. Instead, they are not the tokens of God's displeasure, but fatherly chastisements and tokens of his love designed to promote the work of grace in their hearts and to make them partakers of his holiness. And I think as Christians, we're prone to see difficulties maybe sometimes as divine expressions of punishment, whereas Newton would say, no, 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 the, the, these troubles are fatherly training for righteousness. So like in another letter, he calls on the, re- the reader to view the trial as tokens of divine love no less than his comforts. So afflictions are in reality disguised mercies designed for the good of believers. He says this, how seasonable and important at such a time is the mercy which, under the disguise of an affliction, gives an alarm to the soul, quickens us to pray, makes us feel our own emptiness, and preserves us from the enemy's net. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, you know, even as uh, even as you were reading those statements, I was thinking, when we are not in affliction. Uh, our theology will often take us there, and we understand those kinds of things. But in the midst of the affliction, it's it's hard to remember um, that that these things are flowing to us out of God's love and affection for us, and we forget this uh, this balance between Christ's humanity and His deity, which I think both of those quotations you gave were so helpful to understand. He he sympathizes us with us because he still carries His manhood. And at the same time, he is sovereign over everything he brings into our lives. And that's just such a brilliant balance, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. So, so how, does he, how does he connect to people who are suffering? Maybe you can give us some, some examples of real people that he really ministered to when they were suffering. Um, how, how did he come alongside and, and help exhort someone who maybe in a moment is forgetting the truth of what they know about Christ? 
Yeah, I think a lot of what he would do, uh, in addition to what we've already talked about, is to help them to see God's purposes in the suffering. Like, what what is God working in the midst of all of this? And, you know, we have to be careful as counselors. You know, we want to encourage and, and point them to Christ first and see God's kind hand in their affliction. And I think Newton has demonstrated that. But But as we grow comfortable with that, we want to move on to see what is the purpose of the trial? What's God working in the trial? So, for example... Uh, Newton wrote how um, suffering served the purpose of God in revealing hidden sins. Uh, and you, you know this quote. It's one of our friend's favorite quotes. Uh, Afflictions do us good likewise, and they make us more acquainted with what is in our own hearts and thereby promote humiliation and self-abasement. There are abominations which, like nests of vipers, lie so quietly within that we hardly suspect they are there till the rod of affliction rouses them and they hiss and show their venom. (laughs) This discovery is indeed very distressing, Newton says. You have snakes in your heart is what he's telling us. Yet till it is made, we are prone to think ourselves much less vile than we really are and cannot so heartily abhor ourselves and repent in dust and ashes. So so seen in this light, he would say that, that afflictions serve the purpose of revealing areas of sin in our hearts that we've not yet realized and and God doesn't do that to you know make us feel bad he does that because he wants us to apply uh, transforming grace to those areas that we haven't realized still are in need of change so uh, mentioned his little phrase the need be of trials before uh, suffering often seems random and meaningless but Newton offered to help Christians by encouraging them that their trials trials were full of divine purpose that special phrase he used, that there's a need be for trials, was how he would communicate that. So, for example, he says this, But when we are afflicted, it is because there is a need be for it. God does it not willingly. Our trials are either salutary medicines or honorable appointments to put us in such circumstances as may best qualify us to show forth his praise. That's the end of the quote. So, in other words, trials are always... They always have a divinely ordained purpose. They are not accidents. They're not random acts or moments of bad luck or fate. Instead, difficulties are designed by God for the spiritual benefit of his children. So some examples, Newton would say, the the need be, like what's the need? He would say, afflictions do things like this. Um, Prayer is quickened. Scriptural study is strengthened. And graces such as patience and meekness and long-suffering are enhanced. So for believers, suffering is always a purposeful and needed work of God to grow them into Christ's likeness and further equip them for service. Uh, he would also say they, they help us, uh, trials help us to see our own insufficiency so that we would lean more on Christ. Um, this is what Newton considered the main way that God re- redeems and transforms suffering is to make believers feel their own weakness and their own inadequacy and utter uh, dependence so that they would lean solely and continually on Christ. That's pretty radical because I think when people hear humiliation, you know, despising myself, um, feeling weak, feeling inadequate, that just, that just grates against the common counsel today, doesn't it? You, yes. know, you need to feel strong. You need to feel capable. You know, you can do this. And, and Newton would say, no, 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 we need the opposite. Yeah. And, and maybe that's why Christians are so prone to fight these afflictions because the world has a very different message 
about how we ought to feel and what we ought to think. But, but Newton would say, no, those are good things to feel our weaknesses and inadequacy because that allows us then to lean more on Christ. So, so here's Newton again. The Lord permits us to feel our weakness that we may be sensible of it. For though we are ready in words to confess that we are weak, we do not so properly know it till that secret though unallowed, dependence we have upon some strength in ourselves is brought to the trial and fails us. So what he's, what he's saying is um, all Christians would say, well, yeah, I'm weak. You know, I need Christ. But Newton says, but we don't really know that until God does something to remove something else that we're really leaning on instead of Christ. So back to Newton. To be humble and like a little child afraid of taking a step alone, and so conscious of snares and dangers around us as to cry to him continually, to hold us up that we may be safe, is the sure, the infallible, the only secret of walking closely with him. So another way, uh, Newton, uh, one way noted Newton that the Lord often uses uh, to accomplish this goal is to sovereignly remove the other supports, right, that, that hold us up instead of Christ. Uh, another famous quote, uh, when faith and knowledge are in their infancy, the Lord helps this weakness by cordials and sensible comforts. But when we are advanced in growth, he exercises and proves them by many changes and trials and calls us to live more directly on his power and his promise in the face of all discouragements, to hope even against hope. Here, here's, here's the quote, man. And at times to seem to deprive us of every subsidiary support that we may lean only hmm. and entirely upon our beloved. Wow. That's Thomas Watson. Uh, Watson says... Um, in one of his, and I can't remember which volume it is, I think it's All Things for Good, he mm-hmm. says, um, God will remove every crutch mm-hmm. until we learn to lean on him. That's not an exact quote, but it's mm-hmm. pretty close. Yeah. And, and, and Newton is saying the same thing. He is. And, and we were just talking about this earlier, that, that Newton was heavily influenced by the English Puritans of the previous generation. Sure. So Flavel and Bunyan and yeah. Watson and Owen, all those guys. So, yeah. yeah. You know, it struck, struck me as you were reading, when people are suffering, it is, it is often hard to say the kinds of things that he is saying and have them to be accepted. So there were, he had such a prolific writing ministry and counseling ministry. Obviously, um, there was an acceptance of what he said, that people found what he said was helpful. Have you come across anything that that talked about his tone or his demeanor that, that, that made the biblical message to be readily heard by the, by the counselees. Yeah, I think that's the challenge. I mean, those of us that are biblical counselors, assuming we know the Bible well enough to know what the need is to share, what truth, what promise, what encouragement do I need to share? You know, often the challenge is not knowing what to say, but how to say it. And especially when somebody's hurting, you know, we want to say things that are helpful and encouraging pointing them in the right direction, but sometimes we risk offending them that in their hurt, they're not ready for a redirection or even a correction of how they're thinking about things. Exactly so, my question. Yeah. So and I think you hear it in the quotes. I mean, he, he very much writes in the first person. So he, he includes himself in what he's saying and uh, not so much in these quotes, but he often uses 
his own trials and his own struggles. You know, we all know the line, you know, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And that, that's not just a line. I mean, yes. that, that was Newton's biography. And I think what gave him a platform to say some of these things was his autobiography got published um, very early on in his pastoral ministry, and it was an instant bestseller and went all over Europe, was translated into multiple languages, multiple editions, and um, everybody knew that this was a man who uh, God had radically saved by his grace, and, and he... It was said of Newton, he, he never really got over the grace of God. Uh, it humbled him. It kept him in a place of dependence. So I think when he was writing to suffering people, most of them would have been familiar with his story, would have known his background. And so they recognized that Mr. Newton was not telling them anything that he had not only experienced himself and, and had even shared with others, um, you know, we talk in counseling about um, there, there's a time to maybe share some of our own story as a counselor without making counseling just about us. Yes. And, and I think Newton models a balance in that. Uh, so using the first person, including himself. I, I think he also had a way of saying things um, just helpfully. Um, so, for example, going back to one of the quotes I read a moment ago, um, he, he's not saying, hey, you're leaning on your idolatrous desire of health too much, and that's why you're in such a sorry state today grieving over this <laughs> medical diagnosis. So just repent, you know. Yeah. I mean, that, that's not Newton. I mean, l l hear that in contrast to um, the Lord helps this weakness by cordials and sensible comforts. But when we are advanced in growth, he exercises and proves them by many changing changes and trials and calls us to live more directly upon his power and his promise in the face of all discouragements. So it, it, it's like he's saying the same things, but he's presenting them in a way that's winsome and, and yeah. gentle and um, hopeful um, you know, sometimes the best way to minister to somebody is is not by pointing out their flaws and failures and problems and calling them directly to repent, but by painting a picture of a much better avenue to take and then calling them to see the value and wisdom and turning away from the path they're on and pursuing the path that God lays out that's better. Mm -hmm. That's really that's really helpful. And maybe maybe this is a Good place to transition to another question um, related to um, you've been studying Newton for a long time now. How has Newton, and particularly his letter writing uh, counseling ministry, how has that shaped your own ministry or how is that beginning to shape? I know you're not done with the dissertation yet, but you're a, a long ways into it. So how is that shaping the way you're thinking about counseling? Where, where are you seeing his influence in your own life? Yeah, I think we, we've talked about it already, but I think just to be reminded that our theology really does drive everything we do. And, and we may think, you know, my theology drives that, that, that church part of my life, that religious part of my life, but it really does drive it. And, and not just theology as in I can articulate a doctrine. Um, Newton said that, I mean, to, to really know theology is to work it out experientially in life. And I think one of the things that I see in Newton, the reason he was so winsome, so attractive, so sought after, was he didn't just know good theology. 
he had experienced it. He had worked it out in many afflictions and many sorrows and many trials. Uh, he really felt his theology. We can say, use the word feeling in the best yes. possible way, right? Um, he, he, he felt his theology. And I think that brought an authenticity mm. to his ministry that, um, that provided great authenticity, but also, um, great attraction to what he was saying. So I, I think just, just the need to really believe and live transformed by what we say we actually believe. Um, I think another way Newton has helped me is just to recognize that, um, how we say things is really important. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we do this today in biblical counseling literature today. We, we can read three different books from three wonderful biblical counselors, and they don't all say it the same way. And, uh, you know, you see this in the prophets, you see this in the Gospels, you see this in the New Testament letters. I think you see it in the best works of church history is that uh, the, the manner in which we say things is just as important as the content of what we say. Mm. And Newton had a way in, in his humble, experiential, winsome, careful way of saying things. You know, when he's saying, hey, you have snakes in your heart and you need to repent of them, right? That's what he's saying. But he says it in such a way that yeah. you, you don't feel rebuked. Exactly. You feel helped. Yeah. And uh, I think that's one of, one of the amazing gifts that's unmatched in church history is, is he just had a way of saying things in a way that was corrective, instructive, and encouraging, but not in a way that, that felt like a rebuke. And uh, you and I know that's hard to do. It's really and, hard to uh, do. Yeah. And I think one of the ways we, we learn it is by looking over the shoulder of guys like Newton and, and learning how they did it that way. Yeah. And certainly some of it is um, it, the more we are immersed in the biblical text and the more God grabs a hold of us, um, that that own personal transformation helps, but I think you touched on that earlier. He himself was a broken man, mm-hmm. um, and had suffered much, and yeah. had a very dramatic conversion where God turned his life upside down. And that mm-hmm. that own mercy, that mercy that he himself had received, then is much easier, much more easily transferred to others. Yeah. Um, One of the books that influenced Newton, we were just talking about this too, was uh, Henry Skugel's The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Mm-hmm. And Skugel talks about humility being one of the main branches or evidences of the spiritual life of the true believer. And, um, you know, as, as we walk with God over years, we should grow more humble in the things that we believe and, and in the God whom we serve as we think about ministry to others. Um, and so often you see over time that that people's faith instead of growing them in humility it actually grows them in pride and arrogance uh, obviously that's not that's not their real faith producing that but that's what happens in their life and i think newton had a humility and i think maybe of, of any other character mark it was his humility mm-hmm. that um uh, just made him so effective and so attractive and i think that's a good a good model to follow you know, one of the blessings we have about his life as well is um, so much of his counseling ministry is, is in written form. And that's mm-hmm. that's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and even as we've been talking, I was thinking about the Apostle John. 
Um, and so he says both in his second and third letters something very similar. Uh, in third John, he says this, I have many more things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly and we will speak face to face. And there John is saying there's a kind of conversation we need to have that goes beyond what you can do in pen and ink. Mm-hmm. And I need to have that conversation face to face. And, you know, you've, you've talked previously about the fact that he certainly had, Newton certainly had an, an ongoing counseling ministry face to face, but much of it was done in pen and ink. So mm-hmm. help me understand, is there is there a place for a counseling ministry done after the style of Newton? And, and how do we, how do we work that out? Um, is, is that possible in the 21st century? Yeah, no, that's a great question because, you know, obviously in Newton's day that there wasn't modern communication technology. There wasn't even modern travel. You know, you couldn't just, you know, jump in a car or a train or an airplane and go see somebody. And I feel like today, you know, we, we fight, you know, the younger generations that are, you know, having these deep conflict resolution conversations over text. It's like, no, 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 you don't do that over text. You know, you know, go, go sit down, look them in the eye, you know? Exactly. So we fight those battles today. Yes. But yeah, so the, so the question is, can, can a, a medium like letter writing that was the mark of Newton's counseling ministry, can that be something we can learn from and even apply today? I, I think the answer is yes. Um, so Newton did meet with people personally in his parish, uh, both in Olney and in London. Uh, he did... Uh, meet families of the church systematically and, and, you know, teach them systematically biblical truth, uh, kind of following what, what Baxter did at Kidderminster. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think there's a place for letter writing, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's a lost art, but, but what a great way yeah. to minister to somebody personally. Um, so, so what are our takeaways from that? I think we can take modern written communications and learn from Newton. I think we can think about an email or a text and rather than looking at pure pragmatic ends in communication, which I know I'm prone to do, it's just like, let's just get the point across and and be done with it. We can look at those mediums as opportunities to care for people. And I think maybe not being as exhaustive as Newton was, but we can try to care for people more through the modern written means uh, by letting uh, a desire for biblical care drive our writing, not just the pragmatics of getting our message across. Mm. So that's one way. I think another way is, um, you know, with the modern blogs and, and, you know, online articles and things like that, that that are a little less personal, um, we can learn from Newton. Because all of Newton's letters that we have today uh, were written to a person in a specific context. But at some point, Newton realized that those personal letters could encourage a public audience. So as some of those early letters were written and he was seeing their effectiveness people were encouraging him, hey, you need to publish these. So at first he started publishing them as these anonymous letters in a local gospel magazine. That turned into the publishing of his first volume of letters as a book. And now I mean, we literally have dozens of compilations of Newton's letters, all of which were intended for a personal audience, but eventually were used in a public yeah. setting. And that reminds us that um, even when we're writing uh, to a... 
in, in venues that would be for a more public audience, like a blog, we could use a personal style letter or maybe even something we've done personally with somebody that can benefit others. Now, certainly we want to solicit their permission and make sure that's okay. You know, in Newton's day, what, what they would do was they wouldn't write the person's name. So you read Newton's letters, it's like, you know, to Mr. W, to, yes. to Mrs. N, you know, and, and of course now we know who all those people are just by, you know, comparing historical notes. But, uh, but regardless, I, I think that there's a, there's a value in seeing that the public can be benefited from the ministry that we engage in personally. Yeah. And and we can reflect that I think in modern modern vehicles like blogs and, and whatnot. Yeah, that that that's really helpful. And since you've spoken about um, the compilations of his letters, I, I know there's a vast amount of literature out there. Maybe you could highlight for us um, one or two biographies on Newton if we want to learn more about his life that would be helpful. And then where what are the most easily accessible compilations of letters that um, our listeners might be able to grab a hold of? Yeah, so I, I would say if listeners are interested in learning more about John Newton, if you want to just learn about his life, probably the best biography is Jonathan Aitken's biography um, called From, uh, it's John Newton from Disgrace to Amazing Grace. And uh, it's the most recent biography done. It reflects all of the uh, newer literature that's been discovered and some unpublished items. So um, certainly there's other great biographies, but Aitken's is probably the best. So I'd say if you want to get to know Newton, read read Aitken's biography. It's interesting. It's the short little chapters, and um, I think people will enjoy that. Uh, for his letters, I would encourage, um, it's a compilation of his letters by Josiah Bull, B-U-L-L, uh, published by Banner of Truth. It's just called The Letters of John Newton, and um, it, it's a great um, uh, set of letters taken from different people. It's sort of the best of the best. And, um, and with that, the, the banner of truth also has published uh, daily readings of Newton mm-hmm. called jewels from John Newton, which are excerpts from letters. And uh, some of them are, are sermons and whatnot, but you know, it's one of those daily readings book, you know, so January 3rd, I, you know, picked it and it kind of takes you through 365 different readings. So that would be a, a good second choice where you still get exposure to the letters. Excellent. And then, um, I, I, th- I think it's still my favorite book about Newton is Tony Ranke's book called uh, Newton on the Christian life. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, you definitely have to get some biography, but it's just an overview of how Newton thought about uh, his life in Christ, and so you get the best of the letters. You get you get some biography, but it's just sort of putting that all together in a way that's very um, encouraging and helpful. And I, th- and I think Tony Ranke does a great job. He even sounds like Newton in how he writes, and you can tell he's spent many years with Newton. And uh, so those three books: Aitken's biography, uh, Josiah Bull's Letters of Newton, and Tony Ranke's book uh, Newton on the Christian Life would be the top three. Oh, that's great. That's really helpful. And we really appreciate all the time you have spent um, immersing yourself in John Newton. We have gleaned a little bit from that, and we're looking forward to the dissertation being done. Probably not quite as much as you're looking forward to it being done, but um, gleaning from that as well uh, at some point. And uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us about John Newton today. Thank you. It's been great. For listening to Counsel the Word. Uh, for more information about the Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, you can visit us on our website at thecbcd.org.